the decisions we make today are shaping the direction of our lives tomorrow. And likewise, the people we choose to look up to today and follow their example is going to impact our character, our morals, our families, our churches, and possibly even our community and our nations as well for the years to come, perhaps even for generations to come. So friends, who in your life are you aiming to be like? Who is it that has most influenced who you are today? And as a result, where is your life heading right now? If your life was a compass, what direction is the needle or arrow pointing to? Is it a life bent towards knowing and pleasing God? Is it a life bent towards loving and serving others? Or is it a life bent on loving yourself, getting yours, using others, God forbid, abusing others? Friends, if we were all totally honest with ourselves, I mean, really, just look into the mirror, look at our lives. Is your life and my life truly about making Jesus' name famous? Or are we simply and only making a name for ourselves? Is your life and my life helping others know what it means to love and follow Jesus? Or are we a hindrance to that? Are we even confusing others on what it means to know and love Jesus? Every single day God gives us on this earth, knowingly or unknowingly, we are following other people's example. We can't escape it. We can't deny it. We are by nature mimicking creatures. We are imitating junkies. We are copycat experts. From fashion styles and hairstyles to parenting styles and holiday traditions, even to the way we think about what to do for fun, the food we eat, the jokes we laugh at, the sports teams we cheer for, we are all products in one way or another of the culture we live in, of the time in history we are growing up in, and even the families we have been raised by. In one sense, we are who we are because that's how God made us. And in one sense, we are who we are by the people whose example we are imitating. However, we not only follow other people's examples, but simultaneously in our own lives, knowingly or unknowingly, we are also setting some type of example that other people are watching too. Most likely, people even sitting in this room this morning. Friends, did you know people watch your life? They watch my life too. Some of them are watching up close and personal, and others watch from afar, but it is happening. The watching is inevitable. We are watching others, and others are watching us. That means the decisions we make today, friends, are not just only about us. 
they don't simply only concern us. Our personal decisions, whether we are in a leadership role or not, they are in some measure impacting other people who are watching our life. That includes our words and our attitudes, our work ethics and employment choices, how we spend, give, invest, or save our money, how we treat others we say we love, how we treat others we might even disagree with too, how we serve those who are under our authority and those that we treat who are in authority over us, how we counsel others who ask us for advice and how we do or don't take advice when it's given to us. Friends, all of those things and more, all the way down to the podcast we listen to, the YouTube channels we subscribe to, the blog articles we read, the music we listen to, to the shows we watch, to the friends we associate with, to the preaching we choose to listen to, to the politicians that we vote for, all the way down to what we do with the Bible sitting in our hands. All of these decisions we're making, and many, many more, are being influenced by the examples we're looking up to. And our own examples, too. We are shaping. You and I are influencing others for good and sometimes even for bad. But at a deeper and more concrete level, even more than other people's influences, the greatest influence on the example of our lives and the greatest influence on the direction of our lives is centered upon this, whether or not we know God. Brothers and sisters, this will be the determining factor that ultimately defines our lives. This will ultimately shape our future. This is going to impact all of our decisions. And it's going to impact the examples we set for others and the examples we choose to look up to. So friends, let's ask the question. Do we know God? Do you know him? Do you know him personally for yourself? Have you come to believe and receive and grasp and comprehend something of the love of God through Jesus Christ for you? And do the people you tend to lean on, learn from, and listen to, do they know God? Does their life show any resemblance or evidence or testimony that they truly know God. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to the New Testament letter of 3 John. 3 John, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 593 and 594. If you don't have a Bible that you can read at home, you can use that chair Bible in front of you and take it home with you as a gift from our church to you. This morning we are concluding our two-week sermon series in the Apostle John's third epistle. If you weren't with us last week, you can check out the first sermon of this two-week sermon series on the church podcast. Last week, we studied verses 1 to 8, where we saw a window into John's godly encouragements and affirmation of another believer named Gaius. 
The main three points we walked through in verses 1 to 8 were a prayer marked by genuine love and care, verses 1 and 2. John then offered a praise report filled with joy and encouragement, verses 3 to 6a. And lastly, John then offers a pastoral reminder of the church's mission from Jesus, verses 6b to 8. And what is the church's mission from Jesus? That's a pretty, pretty important question, right? What are our marching orders? What is the great commission from King Jesus? Well, according to Matthew 28 and other passages, it is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to baptize them, and to teach them everything Jesus commanded us to obey. And how is that mission from King Jesus to be carried out in the world? Well, as we learned last week, the Great Commission is accomplished through healthy local churches that consist of faithful members who support faithful missionaries. Well, in this letter, we've seen the blueprint, God's blueprint, of what his church will look like when faithful members of a local church support, provide for, and care for faithful missionaries. Last week, we saw that when God's love and God's truth are penetrating the hearts of his people, Christians will faithfully obey and gladly participate in the Great Commission in the way he intended, in the way his word prescribes. In 3 John, Gaius is personally uniquely committed for having shown generous hospitality and humble service to these traveling missionaries in Asia Minor. And from the testimony that these traveling missionaries gave about Gaius to John's church, uh, Gaius is here in this letter elevated as a good and godly example to imitate and someone that we should seek to resemble in our own life as faithful church members. By God's grace, Gaius modeled for believers in his day as well as for us in our day how important it is to the heart of Christ that we generously support those who, verse 7 says, are sent out for the sake of the name. The name. The name of Jesus Christ. The name that is above all other names. The only name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Uh, to that end, Gaius is highly commended in Scripture for graciously and generously caring for these missionaries who were sent out for the sake of the name. And so, friends, whether we are goers for the name of Christ or we are called to be senders to support those who go, we together, John says in verse 8, are fellow workers for the truth. But within this short and sweet letter of 3 John, some things are too good to be true, aren't they? Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where you look back and said, these were the best of times and the worst of times? Well, friends, 3 John is not all uh, roses, there is a difficulty that arises, and it gets to the desk to John's undivided attention. In verses 9 to 15, we get to see what or who the problem is, and we get to see how John seeks to address the problem and deal with it in a biblical manner. And then John will conclude his letter in much of the same way he began it, with a heart of love for those who belong to Christ. Look with me now at 3 John, starting in verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. 
And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This is God's word. Some important questions we should consider in light of this morning's text. You don't need to write these questions down. I'll repeat them multiple times throughout the sermon, both beginning and end. Just listen to them. First, how should Christians respond to evil in the church? How should Christians respond to evil in the church? And I would say also there's broadly applicable to our personal lives, our family lives, even in civil society as well. Second, how should Christians promote good in the church? How should Christians promote good in the church? Third, how should Christians think about their heroes in the faith? The role models and the people we tend to be like or want to be like. How should we think about our heroes in the faith? And number four, how should Christians think about saving some conversations for face-to-face interactions? How should Christians think about saving some conversations for face-to-face interactions? Well, beginning there in verse 9, we see the elder, what John calls himself back in verse 1, display his apostolic authority in pastoral care. But instead of continuing his streamline of godly encouragements from verses 1 to 8, he is about to sound the siren on a wolf that has secretly crept in among the sheep pen. John, as any faithful pastor would do, who genuinely cares about a church, brings out the shepherd's staff to deal with a pressing and serious problem that has arisen in a church. A problem that seemed to be gaining more and more negative traction without anyone else being able to slow down or stop the toxicity going on in the life of that church. In verse 9, we're introduced to this problematic church member. Look with me at verse 9. His name is Diotrephes. We're not told much about this man outside of the letter of 3 John. And we're not told exactly what role or position of authority he may be playing in that church. But regardless of whatever that is, it's influential enough. It's powerful enough to contaminate large pockets and perhaps even the whole church. To cause some ripple effects of damage. In other words, he's doing more than just stinking up a members meeting. He has pumped toxic sewage into the pipes of Christ church. Much worse than those things, he's begun using the church. We even find here abusing the church, Christ church, for sinful ends. And it's raised John's blood pressure enough that John shows that he needs to be marked out, he needs to be identified, he needs to be dealt with, Uh, He is a 
pastor caring about churches that he wasn't even pastoring himself. Friends, that's just a good Christian posture to have. Care about your own local church. Care about other local churches as well. So what is Diotrephes doing? And why on earth is he causing all these problems in the church? Let's answer the first part of that question first. What is Diotrephes doing? Look closely with me again at verses 9 and 10. John says, I have written something to the church. And again, from last week's sermon, you recognize what did he write? When did he write it? We're not sure. It's apparently some kind of lost letter. We don't even know what was in that letter. Nonetheless, he says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. First notice, John says in verse 9, he, Demetrius, I'm sorry, Diotrephes, does not acknowledge our authority. Now, what kind of authority does John have? And why is it significant that Diotrephes is rejecting his authority? Well, remember from last week's sermon, John's not a nobody. He's not just some random Christian that just started a random Bible study at some random point in history. No, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, selected, handpicked by Jesus himself. That means to reject apostolic authority was ultimately to reject Jesus's authority. Friends, that's a serious offense. That's not a minor offense. That's not a misdemeanor. That is treason against the king of kings, King Jesus. Jesus had told the apostles early on in his ministry in Matthew 10, verse 40, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him, God the Father, who sent me. But conversely, Jesus also said in his ministry in Luke 10, verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him, God the Father, who sent me. And no wonder John echoes this same biblical truth in his own first epistle of 1 John. 1 John 4, verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Friends, that's why the early church, the early disciples, the first century Christians, after Jesus got up from the dead, had given more commands to the apostles, appeared before eyewitnesses, he ascended back into heaven, what did these early Christians do with their life? In Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, in following the risen Lord Jesus, who bodily was no longer in their midst, their love for Jesus was displayed by obeying and submitting to and devoting their lives to the apostles' teaching. The teaching Jesus gave the apostles to proclaim. And why did they do that? Why did these Christians, beginning right there in Jerusalem, 
and carried on throughout church history, even to today. Why do we obey and devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, friends, that's, that's what makes up the Bible, and particularly the New Testament. The New Testament was written either by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle. Jason read earlier from 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, where Paul instructed Timothy on how the Scriptures are God-breathed. The Bible is not like any other book on our bookshelves. It's living and active. It is inspired and breathed out by our Creator. The Scriptures are what equips us for ministry. The Scriptures train us and instruct us on what God is like, who He is, what He demands of our life, what He says is true, what He says is false, what He says is good, what He says is bad. Friends, the Scriptures tell us everything we need to know and how to live a godly life that is pleasing to Him. So when Diotrephes did not acknowledge John's authority, he in essence was rejecting and renouncing Jesus, who commissioned John and entrusted John with that authority. That means Diotrephes was a church-going, professing Christian in some form of leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. This kind of man was not acknowledging, not receiving, and not submitting to God's authority over his life. To my non-Christian friend, there is only one God and one Savior, and I'm not him. And neither are you nor anyone in this building. But if a Christian, a follower of Christ, shares with you the gospel, the good news about Jesus, living a perfect life, dying a substitutionary death in our place for our sins, rising from the dead, now commanding all of us to turn from our sins and trust to him as the only hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Friends, when Christians give a non-Christian like yourself that good news, if you ignore it, if you stiff-arm it, if you remain unchanged, unmoved, and don't care, my non-Christian friend, you are not rejecting a Christian. You're rejecting God who gives you life. Christians, continue to be bold in sharing the gospel. Don't be afraid to be rejected because ultimately, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting the one whom the Father has sent for us. He's the one they've got the most beef with. We just happen to be the human instrument that he's using. Brothers and sisters, whether another person brings us God's word through a sermon, a lesson, a warning, or a clear word of counsel, of wisdom from Scripture, whatever it is we have been given Friends, if it is true, if what someone tells us as a follower of Christ is true, it lines up with Scripture, then we are held accountable to the God who gave us that truth through them. That means this, if we here in CCBC 
disregard and disobey what someone is trying to teach us from God's word and speak into our lives. Friends, if it lines up with the scriptures, then who are we ultimately disregarding? Who are we disobeying? Who is it that we are rejecting? We're not rejecting a man or a woman. We're rejecting God himself. We're refusing to submit in obedience to God's authority over our life. Friends, before it's a horizontal issue, it is always first a vertical one. Brothers and sisters, that's why it's so important that we study to know the scriptures for ourselves so that we can test and evaluate what people tell us to see whether or not it's from God. But that also means we can't wince, we we can't duck, we can't run and hide or ignore the truth that God's already made plain to us. Sometimes we're looking for God's will as if it were a magic eight ball. We shake up and think God's just going to tell us the answer about the future before he gets here. Friends, that's not how we discern God's will in our life. We don't anxiously view discerning God's will like looking for hidden Easter eggs at your grandparents' house or wandering in the dark in a corn maze wondering that God will give you a sign or a wonder. Now, actually, discerning God's will is far more simple than that. We often try to find loopholes and shortcuts instead of doing the hard work of dying to self, asking others for help, crying out to God, not my will, but your will be done. Friends, we are so tempted to want quick fixes, don't we? We want spiritual energy drinks instead of the hard, faithful work of studying the scriptures day by day and then obey simply what we read. Friends, oftentimes God's will is just that. It's die to self, look to Christ, and just do the next thing. Do the next thing that God's word is instructing you. Maybe 3 John is that thing. Read, study, and marinate on last week's sermon and this week's sermons and ask the Lord, what from the John are you trying to convey to me, my Lord? And teach me how to apply it to my life. Many of you know that classic hymn. Ian, we may sing it one day. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But friends, that simple command, trust and obey, was not something that characterized diatrophies. This church member, this church leader, trust and obey was not on his top priority list. Diotrephes was insubordinate to God-ordained authority without a righteous cause for doing so. He's a one-man show in his own eyes. He marches to the beat of his own drum. He isolates himself to his own thoughts. He only seeks counsel from those who will be an echo chamber to validate his ideas. Friends, he only finds people in the church that will rubber stamp his own desires. He's not a churchman or a team player. He's an individualistic anarchist who cannot and will not submit to biblical authority in his life. Friends, he's not relying on God's daily mercies. He's rebellious. He's not a teachable man. 
he's defiant. In fact, he's relentless, persistent, and remains unrepentant in his stubborn rebellion. And he shows that through his venomous words. Notice there in verse 9, or verse 10 rather, it says, He is talking wicked nonsense against us. I'm sure some of us have used that in recent weeks. What's that nonsense? Turn that nonsense off. Stop using all that nonsense. Some of your translations might even say slandering us with malicious words or unjustly accusing us with wicked words. In the original language, it means to talk folly, to say untrue things, to bring unjustified charges against someone, to gossip. It even could mean, it has broader meanings, just to talk about unimportant things on and on and on. It's idle chatter. Busy talk. People who have too much time on their hands getting in other people's business when they have no business of doing so. Endless chatter. A blabbermouth. Someone who can't plug the hole. Friends, gossip is cancerous to the life of a church. Some of you don't need to be told that more than twice or three times, but I'll say it again. Gossip is cancerous to the life of a church. If it isn't stopped, it will spread. Gossip is spreading fake news about someone made in the image of God. And its intent is only to harm and damage that person's reputation in the process. CCBC, pray that we would be quick to repent if we're convicted of falling into gossip. Quick, fast, in a hurry. If God pricks our conscience when we're tempted to spread gossip, and that we would be bold enough to stop it and not tolerate it if it comes our way. Gossip divides churches in sinful ways for sinful reasons. But truth-telling doesn't divide churches. You know that, right? Truth-telling doesn't divide churches. Truth-telling reveals what the church is made of. Preaching the truth, speaking the truth, protecting the truth. This is what sets us free from sin's lies. This is what makes us more holy like Christ. Friends, a truth-loving and truth-living church exposes the darkness hiding in the church. A truth-loving and truth-living church exposes the darkness hiding in the church. That doesn't mean we become detectives or self-righteous policemen of other people's sin. No, when we're walking in the light, when we're singing the Lord's praises, when we bear God's word on our lives first and on one another's, the Lord brings to the light what he has seen hidden in the darkness all along. It's like walking into an abandoned house filled with roaches roaming around freely. What happens when you turn the lights on? Well, everyone screams and says, you do it. But the roaches do what? They scatter. And then the room gets cleared. God's word penetrating a church's life is like that. God's word does not divide churches. It reveals who's a real follower of Jesus and who isn't. Friends, pray that here at CCBC, we would hold firm to the truth, stand firm in the truth, and that we would stay in the fight to contend for the faith. 
And just when you think all the sin was being targeted at John, like he was the bullseye of Diotrephes' hatred, though he was in some sense, John tells us Diotrephes was also being inhospitable, uninviting, unapproachable to the missionaries, even, even using harsh words and harsh treatment towards those who tried to help those missionaries. Look with me in verse 10. John says, and not content with that. In other words, he's relentless. He won't stop. He refuses to welcome the brothers. Who's the brothers? Well, it's the brothers spoken about in verses 5 to 7. It's those traveling missionaries that John calls strangers, those that were not from that area but had passed through. And then he says he also stops those who want to help them and puts them out of the church. Uh, That word put them out literally can mean expel or kick out. This isn't just some small little scuffle in some kind of small group. No, this dude's trying to like excommunicate, kick people out, bar people from membership, bar people from the supper. I mean, he's just running people out left and right like he owns the joint. Unlike Gaius, Diotrephes is stingy and stuck up. He's not opening up his home to anyone. He's not opening up his life to these traveling missionaries. Rather, he's slamming the door in their face. He's turning off the faucet to the money and closing the doors to the supply closet. And then on top of that, he's kicking people out of the church that genuinely want to obey Jesus and genuinely want to love these missionaries. You see, unlike Gaius, Diotrephes is not hospitable. He's not welcoming. He's not approachable. He's not concerned with making disciples in the Great Commission. Friends, if anything, he is like what is so common in so many places. The only kind of church he wants is one that demands nothing of him and a church that makes him the center of attention in it all. If anything, he's more concerned with surrounding himself with people that will only sing his praises. And he kicks people out that will cross him and confront his self-serving agenda. Friends, this man who was a member of a church, we're not talking about some gangbanger or some Roman ruler out in some castle somewhere. He's a member of a local church. And not only that, he seems to be usurping some form of leadership for himself. In other words, he's not even been through proper vetting. He's done everything he can. He's campaigned himself. He has sided with enough people to assume some form of leadership. And friends, he's destroying this church. Brick by brick. Person by person. F.F. Bruce once said, the lust for power from whatever form of inner insecurity it may spring is always a curse and preeminently so in the realm of religion. Friend, a church is in trouble when a devil is their pastor. A church is in trouble when those who don't know God are the ones leading the flock. Friends, that's what's going on here. Diotrephes has risen to a place of prominence. He has risen to a place of influence. He has pulled the wool over the eyes of a lot of dear, naive and scared and fearful sheep. And he's causing a ruckus. He's divisive, he's devilish, and he's demonic. He defiles the household of the living God rather than building it up and keeping it pure. 
Friends, instead of helping the church become more healthy, he's spreading cancerous sin throughout the church. Have you ever met someone like that in a church? After you got to know them? I mean, really give them the benefit of the doubt. You started wondering, why are you here? Are you really here to worship the Lord? Are you really here to grow in godliness? Are you really here to help make disciples of Jesus Christ? Or are you here for a different agenda? Are you here to make a name for yourself? Rather to make Christ's name famous for him. Friends, have you ever met someone like that? They seem to have an ulterior motive for why they're at church. Friends, it should leave us uncomfortable. And if it doesn't, we need to pray that God would give us discernment to spot that type of at least curious and suspicious attitudes if they even rise here. But what is this guy's deal? I mean, just leave the church and go start a business or something. Just go do something different, but don't mess with Christ's church diatrophies. What are his motives? Why is he so mean and harsh and slanderous to John? Why is he kicking people out? Well, friends, we know this man's disruptive behavior is not an upbringing problem. It's not even a context problem. Or he just woke up in a bad mood one day. No, it's because his heart isn't right with God. Look with me at verse 9 again. John says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, did you catch that next phrase? Who likes to put himself first. This is a compound term in Greek, phileo, which means love, proteo, which means to hold first in rank. Philoprotuo, and if any Greek Speakers are out there. I did botch that. It means to be fond of being first, to be ambitious for distinction, loving having preeminence, to aspire, to desire, to crave to be the alpha male in the room, to be the queen bee in the home, to be the top dog, to be the talk of the town, the life of the party, the center of attention, the first in people's thoughts, the last to speak in the meeting, the person who wants to get what they want when they want it, to have it my way or the highway. That's Demetrius, or that's Diotrephes. So what is his problem? It's pride. Diotrephes represents everything God hates, everything God despises, the kind of person God resists. 1 Peter 5 5 says that God opposes the proud. What is pride? Pride is inflated self importance, obsession with self promotion. Self-aggrandizement, patting oneself on the back. 
It's an exaggerated opinion of one's own spirituality, opinions and feelings, and welfare at the expense of others. It's a preoccupation with one's own agenda at the detriment of others. Pride causes us to view people as stepping stones to fulfill our goals rather than people to serve, to help them with their goals. Friends, don't easily gloss over this. If you and I are reading verse 9 and going, man, that was a bad dude. Feel bad for that church. Man, huh, he's ungodly. If you and I read that this week and you glossed over it and moved on, we haven't stayed there long enough. We haven't stared long enough. Friends, there is a diatrophies lurking in all our hearts. Don't easily say, well, that's him. You see, evil is not lurking around somewhere out there. Evil is lurking deep down right here. Human pride is not a surface-level issue. It is really, really deep. It's a deep-rooted issue in our hearts that has hundreds of problematic symptoms that flow out of it and spew out of it all the time in all our lives. It shows up in our marriages. It shows up in our parenting. It shows up with our children. It shows up in our churches. It shows up in our government. It shows up in the sports fields. It shows up in our friends groups. Friends, it's all over social media. Human pride is like bumping into the heat in the summer in Arkansas. It's everywhere, all the time. We can barely escape it. You see, Diotrephes' problem was a heart problem that many of us have as well. You see, Diotrephes was not a loveless person. Oh, he loved all right. But he loved himself. But his love never went beyond himself. It never went to God or it never went to others. It began with himself. It stayed towards himself. And if anyone crossed his prideful, egotistical boundary lines by standing in his way, confronting his pride head on, his raw hatred, his venomous gossip, and his rebellious attitude is what came out. Lions are cute until you wake one of them up. Bears can be nice to look at until you meet one who is very hungry. People can be nice until you poke their pride. We can be nice. Southernly pleasant until someone pokes our pride. Diotrephes is a casebook narcissist. He's an egomaniac. He is full of himself, but worse than that, he was empty and bankrupt of God. Oh, beloved, in what ways are you and I tempted this morning to imitate Diotrephes in our own lives? Is it simply disobeying Scripture? 
disregarding and suppressing the truth of God's word that we've been taught again and again with no intent to apply it? Is it not submitting with humility under the God-given authority structures in your life, in the church, in the home, in the workplace? Is it promoting yourself, making a name for yourself? Is it manipulating, coercing, guilting, and using people in order to get your own way? Is it being impatient and irritable when others don't fit into your sovereign, polished schedules? Is it being cold towards others when they don't give you the attention you crave from them deep down inside? Is it being resentful towards others when they don't give you the praise and appreciation you think you deserve? Friends, do you always feel like you have to have the last word in every conversation? Do you feel like you always have to have the last comment in every meeting? Do you have a hard time accepting when someone else is better than you at something? Friends, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, if I've answered yes to any of those questions, there's that pride. Friends, do most people find us approachable and easy to talk to? Or do people in our lives feel like they're walking on eggshells around us? You see, the heart behind pride and selfish ambition is really entitlement. That's what it is. When we walk around feeling entitled, we become very discontent and even angry towards God and other people when we are not getting what we want. It's because pride is self-love. That's the root cause of so many of our relationship problems. Self-love. John Stott once said, self-love vitiates all relationships. Uh, Cole is in the roofing business, and though we might loathe when hailstorms come, he loves it. Somebody's making money. Last fall, I don't know if this is just normal every year for you people in Arkansas, but whoa, those were some massive uh, icebergs of hail that came into Arkansas, particularly last fall. Uh, My backyard got pulmoned like we had just experienced a war. The fence, the roof, the side of the house, virtually everything. If you were on the south side of town, you know what I'm talking about. It was vicious last fall. Scrapes all over our homes, divots on the siding, roofs dinged up, glass pricked in some areas and shattered in others. Friends, self-love brings prideful hail into all our relationships. It dings them up, scrapes them up, it defects them, it defiles them, it spoils them, it corrupts them, it can even destroy them. And friends, the only, the only hope we have of seeing that hailstorm of self-love stopped is we need to cry out for God's mercy to have less of ourselves and more of Christ in our hearts. So what do we do if we find evil in ourselves but also evil in others? 
Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Here's what John says. Verse 11, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Friends, if you want to head in the right direction in your life, you have to look to God and look to those who will help you do that well. If you want to head in the right direction with your life, you need to look to God and to those who will help you do that well. John says, did you see the just clear command? Clear as day. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Uh, The word imitate literally means to mimic, to follow or copycat the example of another. I remember when I was a young boy watching my dad shave his face. I always wondered to myself, how did he get all that hair on his face? As a little boy, I'm like looking at my peach fuzz going, I think I see one if I turn to the left a little bit in the light. I remember watching my dad shaving his face, sometimes with the electric razor, sometimes with the foamed up shaving cream. So when he looked in the mirror, I looked in the mirror. He shaved slowly and carefully, and when he wasn't around, I took some of that shaving cream and caked it all over my face. I wanted to be like him in order to do what he could do. But before I could shave, I first had to learn how to shave by watching my dad. The same was with my granddad. I didn't know how to tie a tie, and my granddad taught me. He first showed me how to do it, and then I did it in front of him. The same was true when I became a high school football player as a little boy at six years old, probably around Edmund's age or so, maybe a little older. I used to watch high school football players, and they were the ones who really influenced me on how to play football. What was I doing? I watched them. I followed them. I imitated them. Brothers and sisters, did you know that one of the key ways God helps us grow as Christians is by imitating godly examples? That's one of the ways that God helps Christians grow. Yes, the word, yes, in prayer, but it's also the human beings, brothers and sisters, the body of Christ that helps us mature into Christ-likeness. Friends, some things are better caught visually than they are taught verbally. That could be believers in this church. That could be believers at another church. Friends, it could even be reading about believers in biographies from history that have finished the race well that we can learn from. The New Testament is filled with commands for believers in leadership to set godly examples for Christians. And there are many passages that talk about Christians should imitate godly leaders and godly examples. Just a few of them. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3 speaks of pastors or elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. (coughs) Likewise, Paul says in several places, for Christians to imitate him and other mature believers. You can jot some of these down. Look at them later too. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
That's 1 Corinthians 11, 1. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, Jason read earlier. Paul said to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Philippians 3, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Or the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Uh, Members of CCBC, if you're just wondering, Hey, Pastor Blake, how can I be more useful to the body here in the days and months and years ahead? How can I immerse myself more into the life of this local church? Well, friends, get to know believers who are either younger spiritually than yourself or simply get to know believers who are in an earlier stage in life than yourself. So younger spiritually or earlier stage in life. Friends, we can have classes. We can have Bible studies, conferences, and programs here at CCBC, and God uses them, and he'll continue to use them. But long-term fruit in discipling each other is ordinarily through intentional, spiritually edifying, life-on-life relationships with believers for extended periods of time. So friends, you can have a certain friend group that y'all are similar in age, similar in maturity, and keep that friend group and go deep together. That's a good thing. But if we're going to be a church that cares about the Great Commission and it cares about the next generation, we have to also look outwardly at those, those who are younger in the faith and those who are behind us in life. That's what Titus 2, verses 2 to 6, I would encourage each one of us to think about Titus 2, verses 2 to 6 more carefully. You see Paul talk about older men mentoring younger men, older women mentoring younger women. All these ways are ways that we can grow together. Even this summer, there's going to be a men's Bible study on Wednesday mornings, very early, right in there, for any men that would like to come to think more about what the Bible says on biblical masculinity. Invite men from other churches. It's a great way to hear God's word taught on these subjects and to connect together. Uh, Ladies, the women's Bible study might formally be currently not meeting this summer, but if you want to continue meeting with other ladies, uh, find one, two, or three others that you can read a Christian book together or study one of the epistles of John together or just simply get to know each other. Go do something fun. Go on a short mini getaway. Do what you enjoy and do it together. Uh, friends, these ways and more, even this, this uh, fall into next year, the elders are going to be leading the church to think more intentionally about student ministry. In verses seven, or verses, chapters seven, chapters, verses, chapters, grades seven to 12. You should just imagine hearing what some of my living room conversations are like. We're going to be thinking more intentionally about how to mentor and disciple and pour into those who are younger than the majority of our church in that 7th to 12th grade bracket. So think about, hey, would the Lord have me serve more faithfully in our church in that new ministry focus? Come back tonight, you'll hear a little more about that in our members meeting. But friends, at the end of the day, a lot of talk about examples and mentoring one another, right? It's all good. It's biblical. 
John's very clear. Don't imitate bad examples. Imitate good ones. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. He raises up a bad example, Diotrephes. He then talks about good examples, Gaius and Demetrius. But even the best of men are men at best. Our greatest heroes in the faith have feet of clay. Even the most godly people we know, the people that have had the biggest impact on our life, all have pride, selfishness, and a love for self still raging in their hearts, just like us. In that sense, none of us are worth imitating with all of our life. There is only one who has ever seen God, who has come from God, who has always been pleasing in the eyes of God, the one that the scripture says is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who took on human flesh. He was full of grace and truth. He is the head of the church. He is the first. He is the preeminent above all in the universe. Friends, that's not me, that's not you, that's not anyone that you've ever looked up to. That is Jesus Christ. He is the righteous and truly good example. No pride, no selfish ambition, no self-love ever tainted his life. He, instead of keeping all the glory to himself, left glory and took on human flesh, serving the filthy feet of sinners, dying in the place of sinners. He served others. His life was a beautiful display, not of self-love, but giving himself away in love. Friends, we are more like Christ when we're giving spending ourselves, caring less about our reputation and our feelings and our little cute little schedules that we like to keep perfect all the time. And when we care more about other people's problems, more about other people's godliness, more about other people's finances and marriage and sin, the more outward focused we are, the more we are like our Savior. Friends, Christ came down and he gave up his life as a ransom for many. Friends, his name is the name worth living for. His name is worth risking it all for. His name is worth generously supporting missionaries who are sent out for the sake of the name. That's the name of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you've got a main idea you just want to drill down and think about, I'll say it twice. We look through men and women to Christ and aim to be like Christ. We look through men and women to Christ and aim to be like Christ. That is the banner of our life. This is the point of living. This is where joy and life and contentment is found. Not in looking to men to be our God, but looking through men who help us know this God. Friends, earlier I raised some questions. Now I want to answer them. How should Christians respond to evil in the church? How should Christians promote good in the church? 
How should Christians think about their heroes in the faith? How should Christians think about saving some conversations for face-to-face interactions? Well, I'm glad you asked if those were your questions. Question number one, how should Christians respond to evil in the church? Answer, sometimes evil must be dealt with head on. If the sin is influencing others, it's not isolated and quarantined to one or two people, but it is permeating, it is spreading. If it is hurting the church, giving Christ a bad reputation in the community and leading other people astray, friends, that kind of evil cannot be swept under the rug. That is not letting bygones be bygones. John did not ignore it when it was brought to his attention, and neither should we. Whether it's gossip, slander, pride, whether it is in the pews or in the pulpit, friends, pray that we would be vigilant and we would be bold to confront evil head on when God calls us to. Friends, sometimes that means speaking into difficult marriage situations. That might mean standing between a wife and a husband because abuse is taking place. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse. Gentlemen, it is biblical and it is genuine masculinity not to be the strongest man in the room, but to be the one who will sacrifice his comfort to protect others who are being harmed. That's true courage. Think about other people who are in difficult situations. Care for them well. John did that for this church. Parents, you too. We too have to think about even how we're raising our kids. Whether we have kids in the home or grown children that just keep on coming back to the home. If unrepentant sin is present, if rebellion is present, it is your God-given jurisdiction to form boundaries, enforce consequences, and hold the line. When parents are not parenting, the children will do the parenting. Parents cannot allow themselves to enable their children to continue in the path towards destruction when it is their job to put a halt to wicked nonsense. Parents cannot save their children, but they can teach and make it clear what is allowable under your authority. Parents, sometimes tough love is the very way God will wake up some of our adult children and even children still in the home. Pray for wisdom. Ask for boldness when that tough love is needed. Number two, how should Christians promote good in the church? Answer, avoid bad examples. Help other Christians identify what those bad examples are. I'm not into gossip, but here John, like Paul does, he does specify a name. He does bring out someone that is prominent and well-known. Friends, we should show hospitality to one another, imitate those good examples. A selfless, servant-hearted church will push back against our natural tendencies to become selfish and prideful. Number three, how should Christians think about their heroes in the faith? Answer, beware of hero worship. Beware of hero worship. It's perfectly fine to have role models. It's perfectly fine to have examples to look up to and imitate. We just saw that in the text. But friends, the greatest example is in Christ. We imitate others insofar as they imitate him. Number four, 
How should Christians think about saving some conversations for face-to-face interactions? To answer that question, look with me at verses 13 to 15. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. John said he had much to write to you. Well, John, you, uh, you stopped pretty short. It's the shortest letter in the New Testament and all of the Bible. I had much to write to you. Well, why didn't you just continue writing, brother? I'm I'm not sure. Was he in a hurry? Maybe. Was he tired of writing? You know, his hand was hurting. It's possible. Or maybe it was simply John doing what most people like to do when they really want to spend time with someone they love. He rather talk face to face friend to a friend, a brother to a brother, like a sister would to a sister. Friends, why is it sometimes better to talk with others face to face rather than through other mediums of communication? I think it's because we can see their countenance. They can see ours. Our tone of voice, our body language, our smiles, our tears, our laughter, our explanations, our nuanced answers, our careful questions, more time for storytelling and rabbit trails, and the list goes on and on. Friends, some problems would be cut in half in our life if people put down their phone and put down their computers and just met face to face. How many marriage struggles right now would be mitigated and almost done with if couples spent less time as two ships in the night on their phones or TV and more time looking at each other face to face. Friends, true Christians will truly love one another. What has 3 John taught us about love? We love one another by offering godly encouragements and godly affirmations. We love the local church by being faithful members who regularly attend, regularly give of our time and money and open up our lives to one another, regularly serve from a happy and contented heart regardless if we get any notoriety or appreciation from it. We love missionaries well by generously giving to them, encouraging them in their work, helping them fulfill God's call on their life. And we love by warning one another of the danger of pride, the destruction of self and how self-love vitiates our relationships. And we love by identifying bad examples to avoid and good examples we should imitate. Gaius was one good example. John's another good example, and even Demetrius, as you see there in verse 12. Again, we don't know much about him, but he's got a threefold affirmation. The churches say he's got a good reputation. The truth he lives out in his life validates it, and we too affirm it. We even love by remembering one another's names. You might say, well, Blake, I'm not good with names. Well, let's work hard to remember them. Notice how verse 15 ends. The friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. It means a lot when you remember someone's parents' names or maybe their dog if you really want to get in on their good side quick. 
the names of their kids, the names of their grandkids, the, the names of people that mean something to them, obviously their name too. Because we don't want to be a church that just constantly says, hey, brother and hey, sister, as another way of going, I can't remember your name. We can remember each other's names to show that they matter to us. Lastly, we also love one another by reminding one another of the peace we have forever with God. Did you notice there in verse 15, he says, peace be to you. Friends, that's a peace that's not subjective, but objective. In Christ, we have peace with God. It can never be taken away. As Christians, we're called to preserve that peace in the body of Christ by loving one another in all the ways that we see in 3 John. You see, Christ models for us perfectly what it means to be a servant leader and not someone who is full of himself. Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be among you must be your servant. Must be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. CCBC, peace be to you all. Greet one another warmly as friends in the body of Christ. Greet one another personally, face to face, each by name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this short letter of 3 John that instructs us what it means to be encouraging and affirming of your work in people's lives. Lord, thank you that you've given us godly examples to imitate in our own life. From moms and dads, from theologians and pastors and missionaries, to maybe even some of our closest friends. Lord, we also pray we would help one another avoid bad examples. We would disciple one another of what bad examples look like. And Father, we do pray that your love would continue to penetrate our hearts and our ministry here. That we would love one another because we have first been loved by you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.